Well, as you're taking a seat, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Philippians chapter 2, to the passage that was just read for us by our friend Claire, Philippians chapter 2. And as you are uh, getting ready to walk with me through this passage, let me voice one more prayer for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us grace to grow in humility this evening. Pray that your word would have an effect on our hearts so that we would um, embody the attitude of your son Jesus who lived the life of a servant, who died an atoning death for us, and who is exalted upon high. I pray, God, that our affections would be fixed upon him this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had a seventh grade basketball coach who I believed at different points was clinically insane because of how much he would run our little team. Uh, we were a good basketball team in part because he was such a good coach, but he's also a tough coach. And so every day at practice, he would run us till we literally could not walk. We'd run short sprints, long sprints, all types of sprints. And at the end of every practice, we would, as a group of boys, we, we could barely walk. And then at the end of practice, he would always say two words to us that would cause all of us to uh, despair. He would look at us and say, all right, boys, attitude check. And when he would say attitude check, we knew what that meant. That meant that we as a team would have to go to the baseline and stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder along the baseline. And his whistle, we would have to run up and down the court. Now, when he would blow his whistle, we didn't just run like we would normally run, striding side by side in the same direction. No, we had to lift our hands in the air and run with our hands held high. Now, I don't know if you've ever run with your hands held high, but it's not a very easy way to run. It is a, more, it is a very challenging way to run. If you haven't done it, go give it a shot. It'll add some uh, sweat to your workouts. And we would just run up and down the court with our attitude check, with, with our hands held high. And at different points, our coach would holler out, attitude check. And every time he would holler out those two words, we knew what to reply with. And we had to say as a team in unison, it's all good, coach. It's all good. And it was never all good. We were a bunch of liars. It was, it was never good. But we would say it every time. It's all good. It's all good. With the exception of one player, one time, who when we lifted our hands, we began to run up and down the court. My friend just kept running right out of the gym. Never returned. For him, it was not good. And we would do this every day because our coach wanted to instill within us a particular attitude he wanted operating in our team every time we took the court. A particular attitude that he wanted operating in our lives and on our team every time we played the game. And I share that with you this evening because we're stepping into a passage where the word attitude is a key term in it. Uh, your translations might use the word mind. And it's found three times. It is found twice in verse 2. It is found once in verse 5. This idea of mind or attitude, outlook, perspective. And there's a particular attitude that our God wants operating and functioning within our lives here in the church and so tonight, we're going to conduct our own attitude check, so to speak, examine whether or not our attitude is more characterized by a proud self-centeredness or a humble Christ-centeredness, a humble Jesus-centeredness. Now, also in the seventh grade, we had a rival team across town, and, and on that team, there was a guy who in the seventh grade who was six feet, ten inches tall. He was a genetic freak, 7th grader, 6 feet, 10 inches tall. Now, I was the point guard on my team, and, and I wasn't a very big kid. I was a pretty scrawny kid, but I had, a, I had a little bit of an edge to me. I was kind of fiery, had a little bit of a competitive dynamic to me. And, and the thing about this guy on this other team was that his name, too, was Andy. And so I took it personally every time we played this team. I said, okay, this dude's Andy. I'm the real Andy out here. And, and I would take the ball, and I would go right after him. It never worked. 
I would go right after him and I'd shoot the ball in the paint and he would just send it up to the stands and just serve my ball up to the fans in the, on the sidelines. Just, I could never get it going, but I never stopped trying. I continued to put my head down and ri- run towards him. It became a game within a game where I just played my way and my teammates just became irrelevant. They were kind of uh, parsley on the dinner plate while I was the main course when we would do this, going after this guy, Andy. And I remember on one game, one of my teammates, when I was getting into one of these rhythms and it wasn't going very well, and, and one of my teammates hollered out, man, Andy's killing us. I said, yeah, he is. That, that Andy's killing us. But then my coach called a timeout and I walked over and it turned out my teammate wasn't talking about that Andy. He was talking about this Andy. I was the biggest problem on the court that day. And I share that with you because when you step into this passage, the biggest threat, the biggest challenge, the biggest problem that you and I are going to face in this church isn't so much something that is outside of us. It isn't something that's happening in the culture. It isn't something that's happening among the nations. The biggest challenge and biggest threat that you and I are going to face as we journey through the world that is, as we seek to be the people God has called us to be, is ourselves. You are your biggest problem. I am my biggest problem. We are the biggest problem in the life of the church. And so we want to think about how our pride is our biggest enemy. Our pride is the biggest threat to the life that we have been called to as followers of Jesus in this thing called the church. And so if we are our biggest problems, if that is a reality, then that means if joy is lacking in our lives, if joy is not uh, indestructible in our hearts, The reason for that is most likely attributed to the fact that your attitude or my attitude is characterized more by pride than humility. You see, our joy uh, depletes when pride is present and humility is absent. And the reason for that, you will see, is is present in this passage as Paul begins to unpack this dynamic, conducting an attitude check so to speak. And we're going to step into the first couple of verses here. And and the passage begins uh, by calling our attention to the life that we share here in the church, the life that we share together as followers of Jesus. You see this in verses 1 and 2 where Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, these beautiful descriptions. And don't get it twisted when you read that, because it sounds at first glance that Paul might be talking in hypotheticals. Well, if there's encouragement in Christ, then this can be true. Or if there is comfort, then this can be true. Uh, It's not a hypothetical statement that Paul is making in verse 1. In fact, the language behind that, the syntax in the original language, suggests that he's talking about, he's speaking rhetorically. He's saying there is encouragement in Christ, there is comfort in love, there is participation in spirit, there is affection and sympathy, and these realities make all the difference as they characterize the life that you and I are called into as followers of Jesus. So it's a rhetorical dynamic as all these things comprise the life that we share in Christ. Or when you look at verse or as you look at that little phrase, the life that we share uh, in the Spirit. Now, the key word I want to call your attention to is that word participation. Because that word participation, if you mark in your Bibles, that'd be a good word to circle. That word participation is translated uh, as a translation of the term koinonia. And it is a term that speaks of fellowship. It is a term that speaks of the shared life. That's what that is getting after. So he's laying out the life that we share as followers of Jesus in relationship with our God. You see, as followers of Jesus in this world, we worship and we serve one God who exists eternally in three persons. We call this the Trinity. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all three persons of the Trinity are present in these 11 verses. You see the Father in verse 11. You see the Son, Jesus, referred to multiple times in verse 5. You see him in verse 10. And then you see the Holy Spirit there in verse 1. And so what this reminds us of, as we think about the life that we share, understand that the life that we share is a life that engages the Godhead. And that is very significant if you and I are going to see the beauty of humility in contrast to the horror of pride in our hearts and in our lives. C.S. Lewis would describe the Trinity in this way. He would, he would say, at the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. He's saying this is what God is like. He says the persons within the Godhead, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, get this, the persons within the Godhead exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. So there is deference within the Godhead. That's humility, right? Father deferring to the Son, the Son deferring to the Father, the Spirit deferring to the Father and the Son. There is humble deference in the Godhead. And Timothy Keller would comment on uh, Lewis's image in his book, The Reason for God. If you're not a Christian or if you're exploring Christianity, one book I would highly recommend you reading is Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. In it, he explains a lot, uh, the Christian faith and he engages with the doubts that so many people hold as it relates to Jesus. But in this book, he makes this comment. He says, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. Not even just one person but a dynamic, pulsating activity. In God is a life. He would go on to say it is a kind of drama, almost a kind of dance. All that to say is that the God that we're worshiping, the life that we share together in the church as followers of Jesus is a life that has been swept up into the community of the Godhead where we are relating to God the Father through God the Son in the Holy Spirit or by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that is so significant is because each person of the Trinity enjoys fellowship with one another, and they have always done so. They have always loved each other. They have always communed with each other. They've always deferred to one another. That's the life of the Godhead. And if that is true, if that is at the heart of the universe, if that is who God is, do you know what that means? That means it would be wrong for you and I to ever, to, to ever suggest to anyone in this room or anyone beyond these walls to ever suggest that God created us out of necessity. That God created us because he was somehow lonely in the universe or that God created us because he was lacking something that he needed you to fill up within him or he needed me to fill up within him. And the reason why that is so significant is because if you and I exist out of necessity, if we exist out of necessity, all of a sudden the soil for pride is in place. And entitlement becomes our ambition. It becomes our attitude. If we exist out of necessity, then we will cling to pride and we will see ourselves entitled to certain things in the universe. But if God didn't create us out of, out of necessity, if he didn't create us out of necessity, that means he created us out of grace. And if God created us out of grace, then suddenly the soil for humility is present because we can see that our very existence isn't, doesn't happen because God needed us. It happened simply because God loved us. That he didn't create us so that we might give life to him. He created us so that he might give life to us.
And the perspective shift in that reality is the difference between having an attitude characterized by pride and entitlement as you journey through this world and an attitude characterized by humility that says, I exist entirely by the grace of God. And so what we see then is that in creation and redemption, God was not looking to get life from us, but to give it to us. He wanted to share himself, and all of it comes by grace. And that is a remarkable reality, and we have to have that as our starting point if we're ever going to grow in humility. Now, John, another writer in the New Testament, would say something very similar. He would use language very similar to what Paul is using in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2, where in 1 John chapter 1, listen to what he says. 1 John chapter 1, John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, referring to the gospel, so that you too may have, here it is, fellowship or koinonia with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We've been swept up into the life of the Godhead. That's where our fellowship reigns. That's where our communion happens. We are in relationship with this God. But then he goes on to say, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So you have this, being, this life that we share is a life that has been, we've been created by grace. We've been redeemed by grace. And at the heart of our salvation is a relationship with this God. It is being given life from this God so that we can worship God and know God and enjoy God. This is why John would say in John chapter 17, verse 3, that this is eternal life. Eternal life isn't something as simple as going to heaven when you die. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God and Christ Jesus whom, you have, whom he has sent. That's the life that we share this relationship with the triune God entirely by grace. But notice the phrase that Paul uses, the same phrase that John would use. He would say that, I'm, he talks about uh, in verse 2, he wants the church at Philippi to complete his joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, by having the same attitude, that his joy would be completed with their humility. And John would say something very similar. I'm writing these things to you so that my joy would be complete. And what you begin to see there is this remarkable dynamic of how in the church we should seek our joy in the joy of others. That there is a sense in which my joy is incomplete unless I'm seeing other people sharing in it. I want to see more and more men and women step into the life of the Godhead. More and more men and women know the God of grace in creation and the God of grace in redemption because there's a sense in which my joy is incomplete. It's not as intense as it can be, as it will be when I see more and more men and women sliding into that dynamic. So this whole idea of finding your joy in the joy of others becomes a, a humble posture and a humble ambition. Every time I'm asked to counsel a couple who is looking to get married or I'm asked to do a wedding, I, I work Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 into the process. I weave it into the marital equation. Why? Because so many people get married whose attitudes are characterized more by self-centered pride than Jesus-centered humility, and so they step into a marital relationship seeking to get joy from the other rather than to contribute joy to the other. And you want to know why marriages have such a hard time. It's because there is rivalry and competition between men and women. Or they step into this relationship, and rather than seeking their joy and the joy of the other, they're competing for joy, and that causes discord, that causes disruption, it causes all kind of havoc. 
So one of the best uh, perspectives I think we can have in our families and our marriages is, is what Paul is writing here, that the life that we share in the church should also be present in the home so that the husband is seeking his joy and the joy of his wife, and the wife is seeking her joy and the joy of her husband, and when both of them are deferring to the other in that way, that's when harmony happens. That's when beauty is created. That's when the gospel is magnified. C.S. Lewis would say as much. I'm going to use him a lot tonight, but he, he writes in a book talking about how the dangers of, of not doing that. When deference is lacking and humility isn't present, he says it causes all kinds of problems. But when it is, beautiful things are created. And he would illustrate this by uh, talking about a game. And this is what he says. He says, you know, the golden apple of selfhood, that is ourselves, the golden apple of selfhood, thrown among the false gods, that is you and I, became an apple of discord, of division, because we scrambled for it. We did not know the first rule of the holy game, which is that every player must by all means touch the ball and then immediately pass it on. He says to be found with it, meaning you're, if you're clinging to yourself, if you're only living for you, to be found with the ball in that sense in your hands is a fault, to cling to it, death. But when it flies, get this, to and fro among the players too swift for eye to follow, and the great master himself leads the revelry, then indeed the eternal dance makes heaven drowsy with harmony. Harmony is created when we seek our joy and the joy of the other. Harmony is created when humility makes a, a presence and establishes an anchor in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our outlook, in marriages and families and definitely in the church. But there's a threat to this life that we share, and this is what Paul would get into in verse 3. A threat that, uh, that we all face as it relates to this life that we share together and is touched on there in verse 3 when Paul writes this. He says, do nothing in light of these realities, in light of this life that you share, this participation you have in the Spirit, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. There it is. So the biggest threat to the life that we share is pride that shows up in the form of these two words, rivalry and conceit. Rivalry and conceit, ways in which pride works itself out in our lives and in our church and our families all over the place. Now let's think about that word rivalry for a moment. Rivalry is a word that was commonly used in uh, the ancient Greek writings. Aristotle would use it in his book Politics. And he would use the word translated rivalry there to speak about how someone would use underhanded tactics to gain an upper-handed advantage over another person. So politicians would come in, be underhanded, and gain an advantage over constituents or over someone to get into office or power, whatever the case may be. Some things never change. He's saying this rivalry uh, was present then and it is certainly present here and this rivalry can even seep into the life of the church so that we are trying to gain the upper hand in our relationships over one another and we do so with underhanded tactics. When I think about this dynamic, I can't help but think, I can't help but think about the 80s classic movie Karate Kid uh, with Ralph Macchio, not Will Smith's kid, Ralph Macchio version. That's the classic version. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're too young, and I apologize. John keeps getting on to me for ruining endings of movies uh, when I have these moments, but I also think, well, it's been out since the 80s. If you haven't seen it, catch up. Uh, you're <laughs> Your joy is incomplete until you do so. So there's joy to be found in watching Ralph Macho's Karate Kid. But in this movie, the antagonists of the story are uh, the Cobra Kai Dojo. And if you remember, the whole movie comes to this ending where the Cobra Kai Dojo's leader, the coach, would tell his fighter to sweep the leg. 
Use an underhanded tactic so you can gain an advantage over your opponent. Sweep the leg. And there's a sense in which this rivalry that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2, it's as though there's a temptation in our hearts to sweep the legs of those around us, to use underhanded tactics to gain advantage over those that we are in relationship with, relationships that, should, that where we should seek joy in, we're actually destroying joy due to rivalry and competition and these types of things. And this underhanded tactic to gain an advantage, it can show up in at least three ways. One of which rivalry appears in our hearts, in our minds. One of the ways in which we try to sweep the leg is through intellectual intimidation. How many of us try to intimidate people intellectually? We engage in conversations, try to take the conversation in ways that they can't follow, or we mislead them with some information that we've, that's kind of half-baked in our minds or half-baked in our hearts, and then it ends up just pulling the rug of faith out from under them so that we can perhaps manipulate them or control them or get them to think that we are smart or we are honorable or whatever the case may be. Intellectual intimidation is a way in which rivalry shows up in our lives and in our church. But it's not just intellectual intimidation. Another way that this can show up when we try to sweep people's legs is through psychological or emotional manipulation. Psychological or emotional manipulation. Every time you try to guilt trip someone into doing something, that's exactly what you're doing. Every time you try to shame someone into obedience to Jesus or into obedience to some agenda that you have, that is what you are doing. You are engaging this rivalry. It is a proud attitude when you try to psychologically or emotionally manipulate another person to achieve your agenda or to achieve your desires. But then the third way in which rivalry shows up in our lives, not only intellectual intimidation and emotional manipulation, but it can, it can also show up, God forbid, in physical domination. Why do you think abuse happens? Why do you think husbands abuse their wives? Why do you think parents abuse their kids? Why do you think abuse occurs? It's this pride working itself out. It's this domineering spirit of rivalry and competition. It's the proud human spirit that wants to control a situation or to control a behavior or to control a a, a circumstance so that it works out according to their desire. So physical domination becomes another way in which rivalry shows up. This is how pride works itself out in our lives, in our families, and this is a way pride can't even work itself out in the life of a church where we try to intimidate one another intellectually, manipulate one another psychologically or emotionally, or even dominate one another physically. But then the second word, the second threat that we face, and if it's not rivalry, it would go on. He would say in this word, conceit. Some of your translations may say selfish ambition. And selfish ambition is probably a a better translation because uh, it reflects this this combo word that, that is in the Greek in that, in, that, in that verse. Now again, as I said last week, we don't go Greek very often, but sometimes we, do, we need to because it helps give color and context and some texture to what it is we're reading. Here's another one of those instances. The word conceit is the translation of a word, kinodoxia. And the reason why that is important is because the word kino refers to emptiness or vain, and the word doxia is glory. So what he's getting after here is that pride works itself out in our pursuits of vain, empty glory. This is what he's getting after. Vain, empty glory. Kinodoxia. And I can't underestimate the influence this has on our lives, the threat this poses in the church, and the the way this operates in the world in which we live. This idea of vain glory. 
You see, the human heart outside of Christ, the human heart apart from the gospel, the human heart apart from the life of the Godhead is a heart that craves and hungers for honor. It craves and hungers for significance. It craves and honors for um, um, security and importance and respect and The human heart outside of Christ will seek to fulfill that craving and to fulfill that hunger through any means necessary. And so what happens, pride will work itself out where we look for things in this world to satisfy that hunger and to satisfy that craving. And that will spill over into our relationships with other people so that we step into relationships with others, not so much seeking to contribute to their life and to their joy, but to consume life from them and to consume joy from them. We begin to use people rather than to love people because we're pursuing this empty, vain glory. That's what selfish ambition or conceit, that's what that word is getting after. It is what Timothy Keller Keller once described as a cosmic insecurity. That there is a cosmic insecurity that threatens our lives where we feel we have to establish our security by getting certain things to validate us, getting certain people to approve of us, getting certain people to accept us, and we will do all, anything necessary to make that happen. And so what happens is we end up approaching life the way David Letterman would approach his talk show. And in, back in the day before Stephen Colbert took over, he was uh, running the late show or I think it was the, the late show, and, and uh, he was asked why he does what he does, why he goes about doing the things that he does, and this is what he said. He describes this cosmic insecurity. He describes this selfish ambition or vain glory this way. He says, you know, every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. Every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. You're trying to get validation by what you do and how well you do it. He says, it's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. You say, if I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Because I'm not playing a character. I'm trying to give you the best version of myself. You see, that's what empty glory, vain glory, conceit drives us to do. Where we try to give people the best version of ourselves, not for their sake, but for our sake. We want to give people the best version of ourselves that they have a higher regard for me or us. After we're done interacting with them, they have a higher regard for me that can fulfill this craving that we have for uh, acceptance and approval and significance. This longing that we have, it's, it's cosmic insecurity, it's vain, empty glory. And this is what Paul is warning us of in this passage. And what's, what's so sad about this dynamic is that the irony is, the irony of it all, whether it's in rivalry or conceit, whether it's in competition or selfish ambition, the irony is we are seeking that which we already have in Christ. We are seeking that which we've already been given in the life that we share. That's the irony of it all. That's why in verses 1 and 2, he talks about encouragement and comfort. He talks about participation and affection and sympathy. He even talks about joy. We have all that we need in the life that we share, but when we, when we lose sight of that and we allow pride to characterize our attitudes towards life in this world, we start seeking that which we already have, and it just backfires and causes all kinds of issues. Therefore, Paul would shift gears. After saying, do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit, he would then bring us back to the heart of the matter. He says, in humility, here's the key, here's the cure, here's where we want to go. You want to do nothing for those reasons, but in humility, count other people more significant than yourselves. 
In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that word humility, it means yes to be gentle. It means yes to be modest. But that word humility means to be deferential. It means to defer significance and importance towards those around you. Live out your perception of their significance and of their value. This is what humility is getting after. This is why humility has never been very popular. Humility is not a popular virtue. It's not a popular value. In fact, outside of the Bible, you can't read any ancient literature esteeming the virtue or the value of humility. If you read lists of virtues in ancient Greek literature, you're not going to see humility present because humility was viewed as something servile, as something low. It wasn't something to be desired. But when you step into the worldview of the Bible, which makes sense because the Bible expresses the character of God, and if we worship and serve a humble God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit showing deference to one another, that means humility will surface as a key virtue for the people of God. And so 270 times in the Bible, you will find humility referred to, and each and every time, it's something positive. Each and, something, each and every time, it's something life-affirming. It is something life-esteeming. Every time, humility is something to be desired. And this is what Paul is getting after here. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But again, don't get it twisted. One of the reasons why humility isn't very popular in the world that is is because we have bad understandings of what humility means and what it lends itself to. And so there are some who hear the word humility and they immediately imagine Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh because they think to be humble means to think less of yourself. And so we think that to be humble means we can't really talk about things that we are good at. We have to act dumb even though we're smart, right? We have to act unskilled even though we are skilled. We have to pretend we're something that we're not. We just have to think less of ourselves um, in order to be humble. And so we think of Eeyore, this guy who's never thinking highly of himself. He's always thinking less of himself in Winnie the Pooh. And, and you know as well as I do that Eeyore is not a picture of humility but a picture of pride because what Eeyore represents is self-pity. And self-pity is nothing more than wounded pride. And so Eeyore is not what we want to go to when we think about humility. Humility does not mean you're not honest about how God has gifted you and how God has wired you. It's not you're not honest about the contributions you can make to the life of the body. What humility means, doesn't, humility does not require that you think less of yourself. Humility, as C.S. Lewis would put it, means that you think of yourself less. It means you're not really concerned about yourself one way or another. You're just engaging life, exercising your gifts, exercising your, pal- your, your talents, seeking your joy and the joy of those around you by serving them, by loving them, by being deferential towards them, by seeing them as more significant than yourself in, in various kinds of ways. That's what humility is. And this is what Paul is getting after in this passage when he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So what does that mean practically? How do you and I regard others as more significant than ourselves? How do we do this practically? Well, I think on one hand, uh, one way is that you and I learn to hold our tongues. There's a sense in which we need to learn to hold our tongues if we're going to consider other people more significant than ourselves. Meaning, we're not going to speak uncharitably about our family. We're not going to speak uncharitably about our fellow followers of Jesus. It means when we speak, we're going to speak words that edify and encourage. We're not going to use our tongue to tear people down. So considering others more significant than ourselves means learning to hold your tongue and not speaking uncharitably about those in your family. But then it also means that um, if we're going to consider others more significant than ourselves and we hold our tongue, it also means that you and I are going to allow ourselves to be interrupted. 
You see, some of, some of us are so in control of our lives and we have our schedule ironed out to the second of every day and no interruption, nothing can kind of squeeze in and we don't operate extemporaneously in any way, shape, or form. But if we're going to consider others more significant than ourselves, we can't cling to our calendars and our schedules in that type of way. There's a sense in which we must allow ourselves to be interrupted by the needs of others. We allow other people's needs to interrupt our agendas so that we can meet those needs and respond to those needs and love others and consider them more significant than ourselves by giving time to them and attention to them. This is part and parcel of what it means to consider others more significant than ourselves. But it also means that you and I reflect well upon the realities of sin and grace. Every person who exists in this world exists by grace. Every person who's brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus is brought into by grace. That means we are all positioned in Christ, but we are all works in progress. So we want to be patient with one another's development. We want to be patient with one another's progress in the faith so that we don't grow impatient and callous towards those who are frustrating us because they can't seem to think better about the gospel or they can't seem to do better with their lives. And Instead, we, we learn to show one another patience and grace by thinking about the, the, realities, the realities of sin and grace. These are ways that we consider other people more significant than ourselves. And then lastly, it also refers to this dynamic of being willing to serve everyone. Be willing to serve everyone. And not qualifying your willingness to serve based on the size of the need. But you're willing to serve others even if their needs in your mind seem menial or in your mind seems small and insignificant. If we're going to consider them more significant than ourselves, we're going to serve everyone, and we're not going to layer our service with a bunch of conditions and qualifications. You might say, well, Andrew, doesn't that mean that I'll be taken advantage of if I serve in that way? What if somebody starts abusing my ministry and abusing my service to them? What if, what if somebody never says thank you? Well, again, I would remind you of the life that we share in the Godhead. I would remind you of the realities of grace. And I would consider you, I would encourage you to think about how often you and I live our lives every day refusing or failing to express our gratitude to God for the way in which he has served us in Jesus, our gratitude to God and the way in which he provides for our lives, the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the, the houses that we live in. How often do we live our lives without expressing gratitude? I wonder if you and I are ever tempted to take advantage of his goodness. But yet so often we are so worried about being taken advantage of but if the life that we share in the Godhead is one that is modeled after the character of God, expressed fully and finally in Jesus, then there should be a willingness for us to serve everyone. And it also means you and I risking being, taking, being taken advantage of as we do so. So it's heavy stuff here. Nobody said that humility and considering others more significant than ourselves was easy. There's a reason why humility is so undesirable in the world that is. Humility flies in the face of everything in the first century culture that Paul is addressing. Humility, this approach to living, flies in the face of everything that is present in our culture today. But even more than that, humility flies in the face of everything that exists in the universe. If the fall happened as a result of Adam's pride, 
If the fall happened as a result of Adam and Eve sinning against God and turning their back on his provision and his goodness towards them, if the fall happened, then that means a fallen world is going to be more comfortable with pride and arrogance than it is with humility and honor. And that means humility is something that challenges every culture, every context, every era. This means humility is a transcendent virtue for the people of God. It is one of the distinguishing features about God's people in the world. And so we want to consider, no, humility is not easy, but it's ultimately worth it. There was an or- the director of a symphony one time who, who said, you know, the hardest chair for me to fill in my orchestra is the second chair violin. He said, filling the first chair violin, that's easy. Everybody wants to be in the first chair violinist, but nobody wants to be in the second chair because all you do in the second chair is contribute to harmony. He said, nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants that first chair. And I think there's something to that. There's a temptation in our hearts, a threat that we face where we all want to sit in the first chair. Nobody wants to be in the second chair. But the second chair is required if harmony is going to happen. If harmony is going to exist in our church and in our lives and in our families, if harmony is going to be present, then humility must be present. We must be willing to step into the second chair Because there's no such thing as harmony without humility. But if that's true, then how do we cultivate that? How do we get into that second chair? How do we nurture and cultivate an attitude of humility within our lives and within our church? And I think the answer to that question is found in verse 5. Look at verse 5 at what Paul reminds his readers right after he talks about looking not only to their own interests but the interests of others. He says in verse 5, Have this mind or have this attitude Among yourselves, here it is, which is yours, where? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. This attitude is ours when we are living in light of the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. Now, he would then go on in verse 6 all the way through verse 11 to show the attitude of Christ in action. And it's interesting is that verses 6 through 11 What most commentators and scholars believe about that portion of this passage is that that is a song. That there is a poetic quality to those verses. There is a rhythmic quality to it. There is, a, there is rhyme to, this, to the way verses 6 through 11 is written to suggest that Paul is saying this attitude that we have in Christ and then he would describe that attitude through song. A song that the early church would sing in some way, in some capacity, but notice the song that they're singing is a song that's emphasizing the gospel. They are singing the story of the gospel. So how do you and I cultivate humility? Well, it's all tied to the song that we sing. It's all tied to the worship of our lives. In other words, we don't pursue humility for humility's sake. Who cares about being humble for humble's sake? We want humility because humility is a byproduct of a greater pursuit. Humility is the result of a worship that is Jesus-centered, that is Jesus-focused, that is emphasizing all that Jesus has done for us as our humble Savior. So if we want to get pride out of our hearts and if we want to get humility into it, it's all tied to the song that we sing as we learn to sing the story of Jesus. We learn to sing the gospel. It's attached to the worship of our lives. And this worship would manifest itself in verses 6 through 11 and basically uh, a symphony in three movements is the way one writer would put it. You have three movements in this symphony. The first movement is the incarnation. You look at verse 6. He says, Christ Jesus, 
who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Saying that our God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, he emptied himself and stepped into our humanity. Now, when it says that he emptied himself, don't get it twisted. That does not mean that Jesus ceased to be God in any way, shape, or form. The word emptied there, the word... Uh, the phrase in mine is, uh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That emphasis there is referring to the advantage and the right that he had as God. For the sake of time, I can't go into all the passages that emphasize this, but the emptying there, the making himself nothing is a metaphor referring to Jesus' willingness to not take advantage of his deity by stepping into our humanity. He's saying when, he, when God became man, he assumed flesh. He became like us, and he lived the life of a servant. He lived his life deferring to others, serving others, loving others, not taking advantage of his right and his entitlement as God. It's a powerful picture. You might illustrate it this way. Imagine the president of the United States getting tickets to the NBA Finals, Game 2, happening right now. Nobody tell me the score. But imagine he, he gets tickets to this game, but he buys his tickets late. And see, the only tickets he can get puts him in the nosebleeds. This would be like the president getting those tickets, stepping into the arena. And rather than going to courtside and taking advantage and leveraging his right and his status as the president and taking somebody's place on the court, this would be the type of president who would go to the nosebleeds and take his seat there. He wouldn't cease to be president. But what he would do in that setting is that he would not take advantage of his title, not take advantage of his status. Now, I don't know, maybe our president today, well, chances are our president today wouldn't do that, but our God would. Our God did. He assumed humanity. He took on flesh and lived the life of a servant. He did not take advantage of his role as God in the universe when he lived and served and did all that he did. But then the second movement would be atonement, right? Verse 8, he lived a life of perfect obedience. You know what that means? That means that Jesus deferred to his father in every situation, saying, God, I'm going to obey you. Father, I'm going to listen to you. Father, I'm going to carry out your word. That's what Jesus did. He lived a life of obedience. And because of that, when he went to the, the cross, he did so to do something for you and I. He went to the cross to die for our sins, to accomplish atonement, so that you and I could be brought into the life of the Godhead. Our sins could be forgiven. That's atonement. That's the second move. But then that third move there in verse 10, he says, verse 9, sorry, therefore God is high. Because he died on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of the Son giving him the the title, the name Lord, this name that is above all names. This is who Jesus is, all the fruit of his humility, all the fruit of his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And so that's what this, sing, this song is extolling. It's a song that's telling the story of Jesus. If you want humility to rise in your hearts and in your attitudes, you learn to sing that song. 
You learn to fixate on the story of the gospel. You focus on the incarnation, God becoming man. You focus on the life Jesus lived as a humble servant. You focus on Jesus dying on the cross for you so that your joy could be brought to completion in him. You focus on the fact that Jesus was resurrected. He's now reigning and ruling as the Lord over all. And that there's coming a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when every person will recognize that. Some of them will recognize it willingly like you and I are doing tonight. Others will recognize it unwillingly when he makes himself known as the creator, Lord, God of the universe. It's going to be a powerful moment when that occurs. And so what you find in this song that we sing is that the way up is the way down. And that glory in life comes to us when we learn to give glory and to give life away. Joy is brought to completion when we seek our joy and the joy of others, when we're deferring to other people. We defer to God in obedience. We defer to one another in service and affection and sympathy. And that creates harmony within us. All the fruit of humility, all the fruit of singing about Jesus. You see, one of the bedrock realities that is true and consistent all throughout the Bible is that you and I will always become like what we worship. We will always become like what we worship. And so if you are not leaning into and living in light of the fact that you are in Christ, your only other option is to lean into and live in light of the fact that you are in Adam, that you are a lot like Adam. You're cut from his cloth. And that's going to produce something in you that you really don't want. You just think about the difference between Adam and Jesus. Think about it real quick for a moment. You think about Adam. Adam was someone who was created in the image of God. He was made in God's image. But then you think about Jesus. Jesus was and is the very essence of God. He was the manifestation of God in the world. Adam wanted to be like God. Jesus was made in the likeness of man, right? Adam wanted to exalt himself. Jesus chose to empty himself. Adam was discontent at being God's servant, but Jesus took the form of a servant. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience. Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to temptation. Jesus overcame temptation and he crushed the tempter. He defeated Satan. Adam brought the curse onto the world, but Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam was condemned and disgraced, but Jesus was exalted by the Father. If we want humility to rise in our lives and in our attitudes, it's going to do, do so to the degree of of who or what we are worshiping. And if we are living and leaning into the, living into the fact that we are in Adam, our only God will be ourselves and the self is a proud God. And when you and I worship ourselves, we will become proud people. But when we're living and leaning into the reality of who Jesus is and he becomes the object of our worship and our song center on who he is, the worship of our lives, we'll find ourselves worshiping a humble God. And as we worship a humble God, we'll become humble people. This is the dynamic of the gospel. This is my prayer for the church, that we would worship a humble God, and as a result, we too would become humble people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life that we share together as followers of Jesus. Thank you for creating us by grace. Thank you for redeeming us by grace. God, we want to recognize in this moment the threat to the life that we share, the threat of pride that can show up in rivalry and conceit. And we do see how in humil- the, the call to humility and how humility should characterize us. And Father, we want that to grow, but Lord, we know 
that it grows as a byproduct as a result of our worship of Jesus. And so I ask you now to come front and center in our affections and in our attention. May you be worshiped over these next few moments as we sing songs to you, as we worship you together. I pray, Lord, that that you would be the object of our worship and that we would be humble people worshiping a humble God, all in Jesus' name. Amen.